Warning, this episode of Because You Watch includes references to the Holocaust throughout. Also, the second film we discuss, Seven Beauties, beginning at roughly 29 minutes into the episode, discusses sexual violence. If you would like to skip that section, fast forward to the 56 minute mark, where we begin our discussion of Amarcord. Meet a real life Prince Charming. He has met the woman of his dreams, and he'll do everything in his power to sweep her off her feet and carry her away. Now, his fairy tale life takes a serious turn. To protect his family, this loving father has to turn the hard truth into a simple game. Written Directed by and starring Italy's national treasure, Roberto Bernini, in the story that proves love, family, and imagination conquer all. Life is beautiful. Buongiorno, Principessa! You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve greater attention. Uh, this week's film is Eight and a Half, by, <laughs> directed by oh. Federico Fellini. No, it's not. It's Life is Beautiful, directed by Roberto Benini. Francesco, why don't you introduce our guest? Our guest today is a dear friend, Archie Wolfman, with also a very cool name. Archie, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Hello, everyone. Nice to speak to your listeners. I am a a friend of Francesco's, and I I guess the reason why I've been asked on this podcast is I am a PhD researcher in a film studies department, and my research specializes in looking at Holocaust memory in contemporary cinema. That's me. Uh, I don't know if you need to know anything else. (laughs) <laughs> so what he's saying so what he's saying is he's a nerd <laughs> i think that tells us a lot about you already <laughs> uh, okay so for those of you that don't know life is beautiful is a 1997 film directed by roberto benini can you tell us the italian title francesco la vita bella a touching story of an italian bookseller of jewish ancestry who lives in his own little fairy tale His creative and happy life would come to an abrupt halt when his entire family is deported to a concentration camp during World War II. While locked up, he tries to convince his son that the whole thing is just a game. This movie. Okay, let's do this. Why don't we start with Archie? Good or bad film? Uh, That's an interesting question. It depends what you mean by good or bad. I saw it quite a while ago, and I remember thinking it, having quite an emotional reaction to it. Um, and strongly disliking it for, you know, the, the obvious reasons, you know, it's morally questionable to sort of make a comedy in a concentration camp. However, rewatching it this time after, you know, doing a PhD on, on my research specialism for years and years, I, I actually quite enjoyed it. Yeah, maybe that seems maybe you weren't expecting that response. We I, kind I, of need that given uh, <laughs> mine and Charlie's response. Uh, I, I was worried you didn't like it because I've been assured that you did like it. And so I didn't yeah. want it to just be us three ragging on it for yeah. however yeah, long yeah, this yeah, takes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have thoughts I can offer on. So what's a concentration camp? What's the Holocaust? What does it mean to represent that in film? And maybe I think that probably factors into what I think about the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francesco, good or bad? I watched this film uh, quite a few times when I was younger. 
it was not only a big national pride for us. It's you know a film that won us two Oscars in the nineties. It's then a film that was shown to younger Italian people for years and years and years afterwards. And I encountered it as a teenager and without knowing enough about what was wrong with it, I really resonated with its sentimentalism back then. And it really moved me emotionally. I rewatched it a few days ago because of the podcast and I could hardly sit through it. I loathed it. Uh, <laughs> so it, 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 for all the reasons imaginable, but also the comedy and the sentimentalism themselves didn't work with me, even when separated from the historical context. My, Charlie. <laughs> my, my turn. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck this movie. <laughs> Fuck this movie. Don't like it. I tried. I tried to look at every possible angle through which I could enjoy this film. I really tried. I'm sorry. I've been told I'm not meant to hit the table. <laughs> Let the audience know that if I hit the table, it's because I'm angry about this movie. So um, I don't know many people, but you actually haven't listened to any of our other episodes, but we're generally talking about films that we like and we just, you know, like to present lesser known alternatives to expand people's horizons. This is the one film, this batch, which we both dislike. Yeah, it's going to be quite ranty. So apologies for that. <laughs> but thanks to Archie, easier to keep us grounded, <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs> I, is it a good way to start then if, if I would be very interested to hear the reasons from both of you in a bit more detail as to as to why you've had the responses you've had to it? First of all, there's a film that is divided in two very distinct halves. The first half is set in fascist-occupied Italy and deals with Roberto Benigni playing Guido. Guido uh, Orifice. 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 Does that orifice. Mean, you know what I'm saying? No, Does it, it mean orifice? No, no it means uh, goldsmith. Oh, so, yes, oh it, it is a Jewish name. <laughs> yeah, goldsmith, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's very much centered around him courting this elementary school teacher in a very rom-com manner, an increasing series of incidents of stalking, kidnapping, touching her non-consensually, but it's all presented as funny, whimsical and romantic. During this, you see the shadow of uh, the fascist regime in Italy. You soon come to realize that his family is Jewish, although Guido himself seems to be not aware of it. And then he eventually manages to whisk this woman away, marry her, time skip. They have a five-year-old child. It's almost the end of the war. And the, all of them get deported to a concentration camp. And that's where the game narrative begins. So I judge these two halves separately. I think the first half can work politically because it makes fun of fascists. It's set in fascist-occupied Italy, which is a setting, if your characters are gentle, for instance, that you can draw a lot of comedy from. The second half jumps through way too many hoops to maintain that same tone, that same whimsy, whilst being set in a concentration camp full of Jewish people who are being exterminated left to right. And that second half, I cannot digest. I find it exploitative. I find that it uses the aesthetics of the concentration camp as a means to achieve sentimentality, emotionally exploit the audience, and at the same time, it, it sanitizes the subject of the Holocaust and presents it as virtually a cartoon. No, my problem with this film is that it seems to be implying that if you love your children enough and you are willing enough to protect them and you are smart enough, 
then you can protect them from the Holocaust, which is fundamentally, historically, factually untrue. And I believe that to purport that within a real historical setting, I view as fundamentally disrespectful. It, it, it's, it's as simple as that. I don't think that not only is it a fantasy, it's mixing fantasy with a very, very harsh reality in a way that makes implications that I detest about victims of the Holocaust, that if their children died, they weren't trying hard enough. Now, I'm sure that's not literally what he was thinking when he set out to make the movie. I don't think that's what the movie is intending to say. But fundamentally, I think underneath the surface, the entire enterprise that Guido goes on is implying that. So, so what Francesco has said is my understanding that is a, is a fairly standard response to the film that comedies about the Holocaust or not even necessarily comedies because it's more to do with like a tone, a certain tone maybe. Um, someone used the term cartoonish. You were talking about, I guess it's the implication of certain ideas about the Holocaust, about like survival. Yeah, it, it implies that survival in some way is a choice. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's so I think that is certainly grounds on which you could object to it. But but I guess it's like, what is it? What is it actually about? And is it fair to, I don't know, look at it under the grounds of like under a framework of, of historical accuracy? I noticed, Francesco, that you said it's a film which depicts Jews being exterminated in a concentration camp. And, and basically what it is, is that there's a distinction between a concentration camp and an extermination camp, like in mm -hmm. German concentration, concentration Schlager. I can't speak German. Concentrationslager. Yes, yeah. And in um, oh, where did you pick up German, Francesca? Yeah. It was taught to me in school yeah, in the yeah, yeah. 1930s. So, <laughs> extermination camp is, yeah, Vinitungslager or Todeslager, which is death camp. And so the genocide of the Jews, the Holocaust, took place in extermination camps. You know, that was one of the primary ways in which Jews were killed. And so there's this whole debate that Claude Landsman has, the director of the film Shower. Basically, it's to do with like films which depict survival are inaccurate because the majority of Jew, you know, Jews, you know, who who were part of the Holocaust died, right? And so, what one of the points I want to make is that a lot of the imagery we identify with the Holocaust derives from concentration camps, not from extermination camps as such. Um, and I guess, in a way, it's like the only imagery which is available to us. Someone like Claude Landsman makes a film like Shoah, which is a film set in the present, and it's it's more about memory of the Holocaust than than about fictionally recreating some element of history. And so I I guess what the film Life is Beautiful is it's it's kind of like a, a dehistoricized Holocaust. It's more like like a just general you know what I mean? It's 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 like the Holocaust is sort of a fictional backdrop. I think that's absolutely the wrong way to do it, though. I I think that any film set in a concentration camp is about the Holocaust, whether you like it or not. Any film that you make that deals on this level with the Holocaust is still going to be about the Holocaust at some level. The imagery of the Holocaust, specifically of concentration camps and extermination camps, is so loaded and increasingly fraught as we go into a new age of fascism and Holocaust denial that any attempt to deal with the subject as flippantly as I believe that Roberto Benigni is not because he believes it's a flippant subject, but because he believes the solution to the problem of the Holocaust in film is to be flippant about it. Well, I, okay. Well, well, I have a couple of ideas just to sort of be a bit of a devil's advocate about the film. I guess one point to make is that obviously concentration camps and extermination camps were unspeakably horrible 
things which which a lot of people died in and some only some people rarely survived that's an obvious thing to say like the average life expectancy in Auschwitz was between six weeks to three months um, and you know that all that goes without saying nonetheless that you know there were that there were there were human beings that lived in in con- that were in concentration camps and you know despite the horrors that people went through there was you know a spectrum of humanity where people people laughed people performed music people got married in in, in camps in ex- in concentration camps right uh, I am worried about this idea of like maybe mystifying the Holocaust. Like, I, I guess it's like that. You know, it, it, a lot of what we're talking about is sort of enshrouded in certain maybe moral moral ideas we have about the Holocaust should be represented in this or that way. Like it, it's sort of solemn or, or, or sacred or something like this. So people laughed and smiled in in the camps, and and so I, I don't know. I'm just saying that 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 did happen. You know, and and so I don't I don't want I don't want to sort of unwittingly dehumanize people that you know survived or didn't survive the, the, the Holocaust. Just just to clarify, I, I'm, I'm absolutely not trying to imply that any way that people managed to survive other than dealing with it with total solemnity is somehow inappropriate. Yeah. What I'm saying is for Benini to insert himself into this narrative mm-hmm. and create a fictional narrative. As a non-Jewish person. As a non-Jewish person. So it's one thing for, yeah, historically, some people were able to recover some of the humanity that had been stolen from them by the Nazis. But that's not the same as inserting your own comic persona as a writer, director and actor and a character that is inextricably linked to your public persona as a as a filmmaker and saying, if I was there, I'd have been able to do all this. Charlie, earlier you said that it's particularly responsible for a film like this to be made or to be consumed in an era where the threat of fascism is ever on the rise. Crucially, this film was made 25 years ago. I do think it's aged particularly poorly. I do think it's more difficult to engage with in our current day and age because of the political climate that we're experiencing. And I don't know if I'm putting words into your mouth, Archie, but I almost sensed from your take that you feel like there's a film that can exercise something that was prior to it, untouchable. And Or is that is that too much of a stretch compared to what you were saying? No, 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 no. I, it's like when you, when you study something, you're so up close to it. And it's like, you know, it's like when you ask me, oh, is it a good or bad film? It's like, I, you know what I mean? I like, I, can't, yeah. I find it hard to make those evaluations. Is, it, is just... it hard for you to experience films that you are studying and writing about? in an emotional way that you would if you were you know just a viewer like us yeah exactly it's just like you're just studying something you're just trying to understand something I, but I, to, to go back to charlie's position of i do agree that that benini's authorship is probably a slightly problematic or a, a bit uncomfortable element to the film i i don't i don't disagree with that i do feel uncomfortable with that i, I won't deny that i did go and watch some of the other stuff that benini has made uh, before and after this and his style is pretty much there, his persona is pretty much there, but he doesn't cross the line as much. A film he made just a few years prior to this is called Johnny Stacchino, which is ostensibly about the mafia in Sicily. And the framing of that film is that he plays someone who is a dead ringer for a mafia boss in Sicily. It gets taken to Sicily to be used as a foil for him so that the, this mafia family is trying to kill the boss will kill him instead and the boss can go off free and pretend like he's dead. He, throughout the entire film, remains none the wiser and ends the film going back to his hometown without having any idea of what trespassed in Sicily or who the mafia boss was. So in that film, he's very much taking the role that his child has in 
life is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, I will defend Johnny Stacchino to my grave because I don't think it's a film that disrespects the victims of the mafia. I don't think it's a film that somehow undermines the threat of, of the mafia in Sicily. And I think that his role in that film as a pathetic character, it's less obnoxious and less substantious than his role in Life is Beautiful as a savior and as a hero. I won't talk about the film he made after Life is Beautiful, because <laughs> that, that is even worse, if you can believe it. It's made, in, <laughs> it's made in the early 2000s, and it's about him going to Iraq and falling in love with a woman under the shadow of the Iraq war that was happening as he was making the film. And somehow it's less disturbing than his Pinocchio. <laughs> yes, somehow, yeah. Where he, a 50-year-old yeah. man in little shorts, plays Pinocchio. <laughs> I think another thing we should do is compare this film to another film that it's extremely influenced by, and that's Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Because mm -hmm. I think that the idea of mining Nazism for humour, as well as the fact that Chaplin is clearly a huge influence on Benini, if you compare both films, they are both about characters overcoming unspeakable odds to get one over on fascists. Now, here's the difference to me. The barber in The Great Dictator is able to give the final speech in The Great Dictator as uh, Hinkle, the stand-in for Hitler, because through an unlikely plot conceit, the two look exactly alike. Much like Johnny Stacchino. Yeah. It's not because he is brighter or smarter or more creative than anyone else. It's because in the world of the film, which first of all is set in very clearly an alternate reality, which allows fantasy, not in our own world with all the hallmarks of our world that Life is Beautiful is. Yeah. Life is Beautiful, the fact that he is able to save his son is done entirely through the fact that he is a character with exceptional talents for creativity, for focus, for determination. I think that if this film was ever to work, that character needs to have less agency. It needs to be purely down to the circumstance in the way the great dictator is. Not that he has no agency, but he is able to utilize his agency because of the circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of film comparisons, actually, I th have either of you seen either version of Jacob the Liar? I think that's uh, interesting. I haven't. Comparison. No, that was a film that you considered presenting today, wasn't yeah, yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's very, very similar. The sort of general narrative conceit is very similar to Life is Beautiful. And, 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 and Jacob the Liar is based on a novel written by a Polish Jew who was who was in a concentration camp. Um, there, there's an American version with uh, Robin Williams in the leading role. And the basic idea is that there's a, an adult man who friends a young girl, an orphaned girl in the Holocaust. Um, with the, with their, their Jewish in, in the narrative context of the film and the novel, um, they're in a ghetto. And basically, just on one single occasion, he overhears a report about, um, to, this is towards the end of the war, he overhears a, a report on on the radio because obviously the, the Jews in the ghetto weren't allowed to have radios he just happens to hear it once he hears one report about the advancement of Russian troops approaching um, Poland and he tells every all his all his mates in the ghetto this one radio report and 
he gets himself into this very weird scenario where he ends up making up uh, reports about the war from the radio. Um, like these incredibly like narratively involved, they, they border on surreal or ridiculous. And basically people had given up hope he, that his one of his close friends was about to commit suicide. But through weaving, he just gets himself in this strange situation where he keeps on having to make up these radio reports towards the, the end of the war. And it gives people this like uh, emotional boost to basically have the sort of emotional energy to want to want to live he often tells these stories to, to the kids so it's about it's the, the, the dynamic of, of, a, of an adult telling a kid stories um, yeah. and a- almost seeing the Holocaust or seeing atrocity or seeing World War two through a kid's eyes is is a very similar dynamic Archie have you ever in your research did you come across uh, the day the clown cried I've the, the sort of unreleased Holocaust. The unreleased yeah. Jerry Lewis. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, going to yeah. be released soonish, like next I, year or in a couple. I've of heard years. the rumor actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, b- because the rights, have, um, the rights have fallen through. Yeah. yeah, I would be fascinated to see that film. For those of you that don't know, it is a film made by Jerry Lewis. I can't remember if he directed it or wrote it, but he was definitely a huge part in getting it made about a children's clown whose job it was to guide children in concentration camps into the gas chambers. Um, and it's a very grim film that, if it was out, I think would almost be like the dark, twisted cousin of Life is Beautiful because it's you, <laughs> it's one is using humour to survive and one is using humour to lure people to their deaths. So I don't think that tackling the issue of World War II or Nazis or the Holocaust using humour is entirely problematic in and of itself, I just happen to find the way that Benini does it in here kind of abhorrent. And that's not to say that I don't understand why people like it. People in my own family who I've spoken to about it really like the film and got a lot out of the film, particularly parents who mm-hmm. care so much about protecting their children, find it an extremely powerful film. I don't have children. Maybe I'd feel differently about this film if I did. I don't think this film works for me. I I almost feel like whenever I speak to someone who really likes the film, in order to achieve that emotional resonance to it, they almost need to separate it from its history, which begs the question, does the film need to be set in a concentration camp? Couldn't it have been as effective and as emotional if it was about a gentle family in fascist Italy, like the first half functionally is, because as I said, Guido is Jewish, but he's almost unaware of the fact that he's Jewish. So couldn't the film have been as effective if he remained in that setting? I think it would have, but it wouldn't have been as aesthetically in your face. Probably wouldn't have won an Oscar either. Probably wouldn't have well, won an Oscar either. That's the other thing that I hate about this film is that it is part of one of the worst Oscar campaigns of all time. This is the year that... So for context, Schindler's List wins the Oscar in the 1994 uh, ceremony, but it was in 19, it came out in 1993, mm-hmm. beating The Piano, which was a Miramax film. And I believe, <laughs> and I can't ask Harvey Weinstein this, and I'm never going to, that there is a certain glee in the success of Life is Beautiful in the same year that Shakespeare in Love also wins Best Picture, beating Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. The image that a lot of people will remember about that Oscars is it's the one where Benini, upon winning, I'm pretty sure, actually, I think it was Best Foreign Film, he jumps not just on his chair, but on the chair of 
Jewish director Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, it was the best foreign language film. It was for best foreign language film. So the energy behind the release of the film, it troubles me a lot, especially because part the film is partly based on the memoirs of someone who survived Auschwitz. The other part of it is based on the experiences of Benini's father, who was sent not to a concentration camp, but a prisoner of war camp, and added fantastical elements so that he could talk about his experiences with his children. And I, I do think that that is the best version of this film, is a father not experiencing it with his child, but telling his child about his experiences and adding the fantasy elements and using the storytelling as a framing device. Because yeah. you have this weird framing device where the son is narrating, but it's only there at the beginning and the end. and. That doesn't make any sense when you consider that stuff happens that the son A wouldn't know anything about and B Guido wouldn't have been able to explain to him without breaking the illusion of the game. And spoiler alert, Guido dies before he can do that. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to say is that the title Life is Beautiful. <laughs> the title Life is Beautiful seems to imply that if you work hard enough, you should be able to find not humanity, but beauty in the worst circumstances. And I don't think it is the place of Roberto Benigni to show us the beauty that he found in a whitewashed version of a concentration camp. Yeah, some of the images that struck, struck me the most in this film in a negative way are him breaking into the guard's uh, speaker room and using the concentration camp speakers to make an impassionate love declaration to his wife to tell her that their, their child is still alive. And whilst this is happening, the camera is showing us aerial shots of the concentration camp and its inmates as this sappy score is playing and is giving his romantic speech, which I found simply ghoulish. And a very similar instance happens near the end where Americans go into the camp to liberate it. And there's a reorchestration of the main score played as a military march as we see rows and rows of, of Jews marching outside of the concentration camp clad in prisoners attire in striped prisoners attire and once again the score makes it really gets under my skin the mm, way that because it's a bit jingoistic yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about because talking about parts of it that you found sort of um questionable I think generally with films that are about World War Two or the Holocaust or just, just, I guess, atrocities in general is like, how does the film refer to or show or not show directly particularly like atrocious images? You know what I mean? So like with the Holocaust, like the, the sort of particular pressure points would be like, does it show the acts of genocide or killing, etc.? Does it show the, the guest chambers? I might be getting this wrong off the top of my head, but in my memory, I don't think Life is Beautiful shows those things. When Guido dies, we, we don't see that directly. I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about, about the film's sort of dehistoricized and sentimentalization and, and let's say appropriation. But I don't think the film is completely unaware of, of some of the moral stakes or, or you know it's not completely devoid of a moral sensibility when it comes to, to showing or not showing atrocity I did feel it emotively the scene where Guido is shot and we don't see it but even that scene troubles me in its usage and I think you're right I think that it is it would be disingenuous if all three of the characters we're following survived 
the thing about that is, uh, so first of all, what there is, is a scene while people are getting ready to go into the showers. The other thing is that the way that Guido dies is he gets shot alone. It's a personal killing. The point of Auschwitz that makes me so troubled among so many is the dehumanization of the method of killing. The fact that all these people were put together, shaved, tattooed, their humanity and their identity attempted to be stripped away. Right down to the final moment, Guido remains an individual. And, and that's not necessarily a weakness of the film, but I think that even the way he dies emphasizes his character's specialness. So I think on this note of the topic of depicting concentration camps and depicting the horrors of concentration camps and doing so in a fictional and perhaps heightened manner, it's about time we move on to our next film, which is my pick, Seven Beauties. Six more and life is beautiful. Seven Beauties, original title Pasqualino Sette Bellezze, a 1975 film by Lina Wertmüller. The synopsis is, and bear with me on this one, Pasqualino Frafuso, known in Naples as Pasqualino Seven Beauties, is a petty thief who lives off of the profits of his seven sisters while claiming to protect their honor at any cost. Pasqualino is arrested for murder and later sent to fight in the army after committing sexual assault. The Germans capture him and he gets sent to a concentration camp where he plots to make his escape by seducing a German officer. Now, if that synopsis didn't make you go, what the fuck? Trust me, that doesn't begin to describe the amount of shit that happens in this film. But I would like to hear you guys' thoughts about this. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm coming fresh off just watching this film. I, I'll say things I liked about it and things that I thought were problematic or made me feel a bit uncomfortable. I thought the film, you can disagree, but in, in my perception of it, I thought the film had a, yeah, kind of like a sort of frantic, feverish, almost like not, not surreal in like, you know, a Dali sense, but like a sort of surreal tone to it, you know, like, like almost like dreamlike, dreamlike, that, like, exactly. I was going to say, I was going to say manic, mm-hmm. manic, manic, exactly. Like, yeah, like, like there's quite often, you know what I mean? There's like, there'll be a long shot and then it will go to like an extreme close up or it has like quite wild camera movements. But anyway, I think this is an appropriate and interesting way to depict it's almost like if it's feverish or dreamlike sort of saying that that people's um capitulation to fascism or you know the way that people fall into sort of servitude of of nationalist ideology it, you know it that's sort of reflected in the film style but what i think we need to discuss and maybe challenge in the film or just i think yeah it's quite interesting is the sort of way in which the sort of power relationships between let's say concentration camp prisoner and and ss officer are mapped onto this sort of dominant submissive sexual mm-hmm. dynamic you know what i mean like a sort of sexualization of calling like a sort of master slave thing yeah so i you know and i these the sort of moral rigor which we applied to life is beautiful i think i think we should be applying similar you know rigor to, to that sort of thing i, t- I totally agree i really <sighs> 
fuck, it's a Holocaust movie. You don't enjoy Holocaust movies. <laughs> but I found this film fascinating and I think solves a lot of my personal problems with Life is Beautiful. Firstly, it's not from the point of view of a Jewish prisoner, which the film is very honest in depicting have a different sort of survival rate. The other thing that I liked about it is that in order to overcome unspeakable horror and adversity and live through this horrible period of history, sacrifice needs to occur. Comparing Seven Beauties to Guido, mm -hmm. Guido ultimately does sacrifice his life, but he, you never see him in some sort of existential sacrifice. He's very much able to maintain his, not only his humanity and his personage, but his persona and his personality. The way that Seven Beauties survives is that he has to give up his dignity, has to give up his humanity. And I think it was a much more raw and disturbing, but in the way that I think is correct for this sort of story, I think that's the way you go about it. So uh, to address both of your points, uh, Archie, your point about the sexual metaphors used by the film, for lack of a better word, I completely agree with it. It's why I was hesitant to pick this film. I, I sort of dwindled on it for a bit. I wanted to watch it first because I was familiar with its context, but I'd never seen it before. I watched it. I decided that if anything, whether you guys liked it or not, it was a good fit. So I went with it. For context on Lina Wertmüller herself, the film that she made right prior to this in 1974 is titled Swept Away. It's about a snobbish, arrogant, upper-class woman who's on a boat with an entourage of working-class sailors attending to her every need. She goes on a dinghy with one of the sailors with whom she has a particularly antagonistic relationship with, and the two of them shipwreck on a desert island. On this desert, desert island, it starts a relationship with her where he is dominating her. So it pretty much flips the class dynamic between the two of them. Already in this film, Lina Wertmüller uses BDSM and sexual dynamics of domination and submission to make what is fundamentally a political allegory, in this case about class and about class revolution. I see a lot of that in Seven Beauties, and I do have problems with that element of Seven Beauties because of the concentration camp aesthetic uh, built around it. Again, the same problem I have with, with Life is Beautiful. Fundamental difference there being, as Charlie said, he's not Jewish. So there is something there about him where he eventually becomes a capot in the concentration camp. But even the fact that he gets away with whistling at the warden and trying to flirt with her, then she has this incredibly horrifying sexual encounter with him where you know, she uh, fundamentally abuses him. I defend it in the case of this specific character, because this is a film that's not only about concentration camp, but it's also about the deconstruction of a hyper-masculine character who loses his masculinity and who eventually needs to reclaim it. He is, as the synopsis suggests, a rapist. He is someone who is not above abusing and exploiting his female family members, his sisters and his mother, in order to defend his manly honor. So the fact that he eventually gets into this setting, this prison setting, again, 
let's try and divorce it from the concentration camp like we did with Life is Beautiful. He gets into this prison setting where his masculinity is completely reversed and flipped on its head through this sexual dynamic. I think that's interesting. It's very 1970s. I don't think a film like this could be made today. I'm still pro it for the reasons I described. I hope that that wasn't yeah, too rambling. I, I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still pro it. My, my problem with it is, I think it does make a difference that he isn't Jewish and that he specifically is there as a political prisoner because he deserted from the Italian army in Germany. The problem that I have with it though is the explicit framing of him as a rapist. Mm -hmm. And not that that is in and of itself problematic because all the things you describe, I think are really interesting and explored in any other context, I think would work really well. And I think it does by and large work well here. However, you still use the iconography of the Holocaust mm -hmm. and of Nazism to show it as a way for this terrible character to, in some twisted way, get his just desserts. Mm -hmm. My biggest problem with it is the framing of the concentration camp as a punishment for actual crime. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely see that. Which it isn't because he has to go through multiple mm -hmm. stages to get there. I also think it's less of a punishment and more of a so, almost poetic irony. It was, it's almost like a purgatory. But it's also less, do you think that he eventually learns from his mistakes and gets redeemed? I don't think, or, or gets, gets, his, gets his due. I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but yeah. I, I genuinely think that the ending implies that he does. I think that he has grown from the experience that he is not the same character that he was at the beginning based on how he reacts to how the world has changed. And we won't mm -hmm. go too much into that. Okay. I didn't really read it as a Holocaust film as, as such. I, it certainly uses the iconography of the camps, but my, my general understanding of the film was, well, because as both of you have mentioned, it's not really about genocide of Jewish people. It, it's not got a Jewish character in it. But there is, one, there is a very striking scene near the beginning, yeah, which does yeah, yeah. directly address that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But aside from that, I generally just saw it to be more about non-Jewish Italian subjects under under fascism, right? That that rather than being about about persecution of Jews specifically, like you, both of you described it several times as being set in a concentration camp, and I think some of the promotional material, like the blurb or the synopsis or whatever of the film, says it's in a concentration camp. But there, there's a moment in the scene, there's a moment in the film where you can see some writing on a wall, and it says Arbeitslager, so like work camp. Okay which is, again, different to a concentration camp and mm -hmm, certainly not sure. an extermination camp. And so, you know, the Nazis did have a policy of extermination by labor, like, you know, basically working people to death. You, you can see this, you can see the symbol on the main, I forgot his name, the main character's jacket is a-, is a It's a red uh, triangle. Uh, red triangle, exactly. So he's, he's a political prisoner. That's what mm -hmm. that symbol Because means. in a previous conversation, Francesco asked if it was a prisoner of war camp rather than a concentration camp. And the time, I believe, when the film is set, Italy and Germany is still allied. So his desertion is a political act against Germany, which makes him mm -hmm. a political prisoner rather than a prisoner of war. So I tried to look up the specific timeline of the film and I couldn't find it anywhere. My understanding is that at the very chronological beginning of the film, it's structured in a flashback, flash forward structure. At the chronological beginning of the film, the war hasn't started yet. We're talking probably 37, 38. Well, well Italy didn't join the war Until 1940, yeah. They didn't join the war. Until, so he's yeah. in the asylum in 1940? He's in the asylum. Uh, he gets sent to, the, to this mental asylum for killing a person in 1939. 
before the war starts, possibly even 1938, there is a very crucial scene, which is probably the most explicit political statement by the director herself in that moment, where he's been arrested for killing and chopping to bits this guy in order to hide the body. And he's awaiting his imprisonment in this waiting room with this other guy. And the other guy asks him, are you a political prisoner? And he says, no, I'm, I'm a butcher or I'm, I'm, I'm a murderer. And it turns out that the other guy who is a political prisoner who's been sent there for being a socialist has been given a much heavier sentence than Pasqualino, who has committed this heinous crime. And they have this conversation where Pasqualino essentially states his politics, which are a mixture of, I don't care about politics, I find them boring. But there is something to be said about Mussolini that, you know, he makes the trains run on time and is, is brought back law and order in our country. You can expect the subsequent misadventures that he goes through to misconstrue that misconception, to open his eyes to the fact that no fascism is actually horrific. But again, I'm not too preoccupied with spoiling this film because I also do think that it's really difficult to discuss it without discussing some of the stuff that happens later in the film. But he eventually, when he does, as you said earlier, Charlie give up his humanity and give up his dignity, he does that not in order just to survive, but he also does that through becoming a collaborator of the Nazis. You know, it's, it's immediately followed by him becoming a capo. And it's, yeah, exactly. So I think that is really the type of character that this film is presenting us with, not someone who needs to reckon with his own politics and with his own crimes, but more so someone who is already primed to become a subject of fascism and who through relentless torture, which is very much a comeuppance of what he inflicts upon others, especially upon women, but through a relentless series of misadventures, ends up kind of in the same place where he started, but, but without any of his humanity or any of his, or any, anything that made him feel superior to others. He becomes a subject of fascism through submission rather than through this for domineering persona that he has at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Uh, just to it. follow up on something Archie said, that he's absolutely right that this isn't a Holocaust film in that it doesn't follow the experiences of Jewish characters, uh, but by and large, um, speaking of the Holocaust as specifically the extermination of multiple Jews rather than the millions of other people also uh, suffered under the Nazis. So I just wanted to address that. I, I think, yeah, in terms of designating it as a Holocaust film, yeah, if you're, if you're sort of concerned about historical accuracy, yeah, if you're talking about the Holocaust or let's say the Shoah, because so, sometimes the, the definition of the Holocaust does include the other um, victim groups. But if you're, let's say, Shoah, because that's the Hebrew word for it, which means sure. destruction or catastrophe. In that sense, yeah, it's, it's not explicitly about the Shoah. But nonetheless, what is interesting is there is this iconography of the camps, which is quite recognisable, isn't it? Like striped uniforms, barbed wire, watchtowers, SS guards, all this stuff. And so it is drawing on that, that iconography in, in quite an explicit way. Yeah. And, and just interesting, for example, like, like when I was looking at this film online, the, the synopses say that the character is sent to a concentration camp. Yeah, I, 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 just, I just don't know how much of that is, is lost in <laughs> translation, like the idea of like the word concentration camp having become sort of a pervasive yeah. word to describe everything. That... Because concentration camps were initially built to house political prisoners. Yeah, the first people sent to them were communists. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, but, you know, before the outbreak of the war, starting from 33. Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely think that this is a fascinating film. It's 
probably not one you should watch if you're not having a great day. Yeah, uh, so another interesting comparison to Life is Beautiful is that this film does not shy away from showing a lot of horrors among them, bodies hung from ceilings with their pants pulled down, people being executed and mass executed. Uh, also being forced to execute being, each other. Being, uh, forced to execute each other. Rape, which is not necessarily you know related to the Holocaust specifically, but there is one extremely vivid rape scene. And like this is not a film that sanitizes any of its violence. It does maintain a weird ironic distance from it, though. The opening scene, what do you guys think of the opening scene? Because that's quite interesting. I don't know if you remember it distinctly. It's archive footage, and over it there's this narrator... It's a montage. The, yeah, it's, it's, it's a montage of archive footage, and over it there's this narrator giving almost like a funny comedic speech, and he says, oh, those who go, we should defend the country, those who go... And he, and he says, oh yeah, at the end of every sentence. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you make of that? <laughs> Well, it, it's. I, I think it's to, uh, to compare it to another film that we'll go on to discuss. I think it's rough. It's a bit reminiscent of the beginning of Amacord in the in the sense that Amacord begins with like a direct address to camera of almost like a, sort of a, a framing of the story, isn't it? To, to go back to Seven Beauties, it's almost as though it's almost. I I, I almost interpreted that being almost from the vantage point of the present day so mm -hmm. it's got the archive footage right so an archive footage black and white is black and white right yeah yeah so that's not that's history from the point of view of the present isn't it that's not that's not a fictional reconstruction of the past where, where you're immersed in the diegesis of the film as a historical recreation that's that's history viewing the past from the present day isn't it so given that you were talking about the relevance of present day fascism to, to past fascism I, I feel like that's what the that's what the film was possibly saying I I'm not particularly an expert on Italian history and politics but it's my understanding that in the mid 70s when the film was introduced like Italy was quite politically volatile is that because the way in which the film began and the way it framed it you know it was like saying people who still believe in like servitude to politicians or whatever oh yeah that type of thing as well as being a film about the past, what is this film trying to say about the, the present? What is it saying about mm -hmm. present day? And, and I mean, so I'm not yeah. enough of an expert on Italian politics and history. You know, the, Apology that, accepted. That, that, <laughs> that scene I mentioned earlier with uh, Pasqualino going, oh yeah, Mussolini made the trains run on time. I don't think that ever disappeared from the Italian ethos, especially not now. It's become you know stronger than ever. Well, it's almost so, a meme now. Several people still believe it. Oh, it's, right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but it, it's almost like the gut reaction that, oh, Mussolini wasn't all bad. He made the trains run time. It, it, it's well, repeated it's, so much that it's that the saying of it is more meaningful than what it's actually saying. Yeah, like a lot of people who do make those arguments, and ironically, they won't use that specific sentence anymore because of how much it's been it's become almost like yeah a stereotype but they would say things like he built infrastructure and then back in the 70s lena Bertmuller, through the mouth of the socialist character brings up oh do you know that salaries have dropped and the economy has tanked ever since Mussolini took power. So it didn't bring back, like, it, it, it didn't make us wealthier, it didn't make us richer, it didn't make, it didn't do any of those things, but people still choose to believe that. I mean, there are so many parallels to our present day. It, it is quite quaint to imagine a politically volatile Italy. Yeah, no, we've always had, we've always been on top of things, haven't we? Yeah, ever, ever uh, since the 70s, you had a rough patch, but it's all good now, right? <laughs> one, one question actually was, um, because if we're sort of comparing films that we're talking about today, obviously one of the central contentious points about Life is Beautiful is the comedic elements or the comedic tone. And I, I wouldn't say obviously Seven Beauties is, is, a, is a comedy in terms of its genre, but there are... There are it is funny. 
it, there are moments exactly where it's funny. Yeah, yeah. So, so I totally agree. General thoughts about that. Okay, so here's what I think the difference is. Life is beautiful. The comedy comes from how smart Guido is or how funny he is. The comedy in Seven Beauties is because bad things are happening to Seven Beauties. It's the opposite. It's the opposite end. It's almost like have you ever seen that Stephen Fry interview? He said the difference between American comedy and British comedy is the American comedian is John Belushi breaking the guitar in Animal House, and the British comedian is the guy whose guitar he smashed. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that there are two versions of comedy: you either want to be the wise guy, or you want to be the guy that a bucket of piss falls on. With Benini, there's no pathos. There's no reaction to the funny things because he's the one causing them. And I think the film stops being funny after it becomes more specifically about the war in concentration camps. But the very beginning is quite funny, which is part of why I chose it for this episode, because we can talk about the comedy. And I think the funniest scene in the film is when at the beginning, he finds that one of his sisters is being pimped and trafficked by this mafia type. And obviously it takes it it takes it up to the sister herself. He, he blames her for it partially. But for how it makes him look. Yeah, for how it makes him look and for how she's dishonoring the family. But you know, he's he's been incredibly aggressive and incredibly hypermasculine, and then he keeps throwing these threats around that oh if he keeps doing that, he's going to kill the guy. And when he finds out that she's still being pimped by this person, and he has this final really foreshadowed confrontation with him. He opens his jacket to show his pistol that he's hanging in his trousers. He takes up this pose as a machoistic hero cool type. Then the guy goes up to him, punches him in the face with a chain, he just falls on the ground and passes out. And that's it. And that's like his masculinity and his flaunting crumbles in front of your eyes. And, it's, it's, and, yeah. and also what's hilarious about that is that the pimp that does this, what makes it even funnier is that he's not Scarface. No, he's like a he, short, he, he's chubby a guy. short, chubby, middle-aged guy <laughs> who happens to have this energy. Whereas Seven Beauties looks much more like the traditional mafioso. Yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate the fact that that's who takes him down. Mm -hmm. It's someone that doesn't exemplify the masculine ideal that he is striving towards. Before we move on, I, there's two things I want to bring up more in this, in this film. First of all, Benigni wins the Oscar for Life is Beautiful being, is he the first Italian speaking actor to do so? He's the first Italian actor to win uh, Best Actor. Best actor yeah. yeah. So I wanted to bring this film because I wanted to bring attention to Giancarlo Giannini, who I believe is actually one of the greatest Italian actors who ever existed. His performance in this film is... Why stop? I, I think he's. I think he's really excellent in this. Why stop it, Italian? I just think he's a really good performance. Oh yeah, no. Just in terms of like, I mean, just to present it to people who may not be familiar with Italian actors outside of Benigni and maybe Mastroianni, I think Giancarlo Giannini is definitely up there. Another thing we should probably address before moving on is we hinted at it earlier, but the depiction of horror and violence in this film, specifically in the concentration camp scenes. Uh, I did say that this was a point that this film has in favor over Life is Beautiful, in my opinion, but do you have dissenting opinions on that or what are your thoughts on that? It's complicated mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I don't fully know how I feel about it. Isolated from any single film, if you ask me, should a film depicting the crimes of Nazi Germany deal with it in a visceral manner or a distanced manner? Mm -hmm. I think I'd say visceral. So in that sense, I think it's the right thing to do. I also like the fact that the camera is quite neutral in depicting it. 
that it's not overly expressionist. It's almost like you're looking at a medical textbook. And, and not that neutral means there's not a conscious decision behind it, but the fact that it is, this is what is on the floor and I'm filming the floor. There is a use of music that is quite... Uh, I mean, in terms yeah. of cinematography. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it's part of the overall style. Because for, yeah. for a very stylized film, if we're talking about the same part, we're talking about the montage of when he first sees mm -hmm. the horrors of the camp, I found that particular sequence all the more disturbing because there weren't quite as many flourishes. Mm -hmm. like the lighting wasn't as expressionist. It, it, it was, I, I don't know, I still have some things to think about with it, and I don't know how well I phrased it, but, you know, that's kind of how I feel. But there is something to what you said about the way that it's dealing with it is in a sort of detached way and whether or not that's appropriate. I'd like to hear more about hear more about that maybe I'd be able to communicate my feelings on this film a bit better mm -hmm. I didn't think there was anything that was it, it just seemed you know the way in which a lot of war films would depict those sort of atrocities and and I agree that it's sort of like quite cold calculating I think the, the description of it being almost like a medical examination or something like that is is apt the one point where I did feel very uncomfortable was the was the rape scene in this film and it's a difficult thing it's like just because a film depicts rape does not mean the film is, is pro-rape but i did there was something about that scene which i just felt sexualized the victim in some way in which i felt very uncomfortable uh, but but it's complex isn't it because obviously it's a film about you know atrocities that happen when people are dehumanized and so of course you you have you you depict these things yeah this is a problem i have with the broader work of this director. Uh, as I mentioned, the previous film, which is about, you know, this BDSM relationship, it starts off as kind of non-consensual and then it becomes consensual, which is a very responsible thing to do, especially when you're depicting kink, to depict the fact that you can go from non-consent to consent. And this film, you can, in a way, not defend, but justify the weird pornographic nature of that scene, if you see it as being from his perspective. I justify the presence of that scene because it's immediately followed like not even a scene in between like it cuts to him being punished for his crime so there is an immediate almost catharsis after you have you have to sit through this horrible grueling scene where he's raping a woman who's tied up on a bed i do i do think that one thing that does make it uncomfortable for that for that reason is that it's I think it's the one example in a film which does have a fair amount of nudity. It is the one scene with any nudity for the purpose seemingly of titillation, mm -hmm. whether for the audience or for a character. There are images in the film of sexualization in burlesque clubs and all of that. But the fact that you do see someone's naked body in the context of sex, no matter what the context is, that will always have an effect on your film, if not your audience. Mm -hmm. There is there is just sort of a, a well-recognised sort of set of tropes or associations in, involved, as we were mentioning earlier, to do with making connections between Nazism and, and fascism and, and sort of uh, BDSM or, or like, you know, some sort of sexualization of In general, I think there is a film that I recommend people watch with all the caveats that come with it. Uh, watch it knowing what you're getting into and it is a film that is stimulating, that is intellectually challenging in a way that Life is Beautiful isn't. But it's a film that at points is just as exploitative as Life is Beautiful, if not arguably more. So 
get into it with caution. And just on a broader point, we talk a lot about not wanting to spoil the ultimate picks that we're bringing, but I think in films like the ones we're talking about today, I would rather make sure people know what they're getting into, what they're getting into yeah. and how it might make them feel yeah. when they watch it than necessarily keep the plot a secret of a 50-year-old movie. Yeah, exactly. On that note, it's time we move on to our next pick of the day, uh, play the trailer. Il babbo mi va, il babbo del mio babbo, lo chiamavano Carnazza. Le porta 107 anni e ancora oh. Io divento matta! Matta divento matta! Io vi metto la strecklina nella minestra. E invece mamma sto prima io. Amacord is a 1973 film directed by Federico Fellini. In an Italian seaside town, young Tita gets into trouble with his friends and watches various local eccentrics as they engage in often absurd behavior. Frequently clashing with his stern father and defended by his doting mother, Tita witnesses the actions of a wide range of characters, from his extended family to fascist loyalists to sensual women, with certain moments shifting into fantastical scenarios. Mm-hmm. So, this movie, it's weird me presenting a Fellini considering that Francesco knows a lot more about Fellini than I do. Uh, I did go through, not his entire filmography, but all the main ones. Um, I do think this is probably my favorite late Fellini. That's, that's how it's often described. Yeah, it's like, it's not an unpopular opinion, Fellini fell off. Yeah, it's, it's interesting knowing that this sort of comes, like I said, this is late Fellini and this desire to look back on the past. The other thing, it's described as an autobiographical film on the part of Fellini, but first of all, Tita isn't him, it's his friend whose nickname was Tita. And it's a mixture of the memories of himself and the screenwriter Tonino Guerra. Mm -hmm. I think that talking specifically in the context of comparing it to the other films that we're discussing, I think this is the right way to add fantasy to the imagery of fascism. I think that when dealing with fantasy and adding it to fascism to make a larger political point about the almost fairy tale version of reality that fascism purports, I think this is a more successful attempt than Life is Beautiful. And part of that might just be that it doesn't deal with the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The other part might be that Fellini doesn't play himself. Mm -hmm. It's not as much of a vanity piece. I mean, you can describe, if you want to describe Life is Beautiful as a vanity piece, I'm not quite sure that's entirely correct, despite what I've said earlier, but I, I do think that this, it's about a town, it's about a people, it's not about an exceptional human. This is a film about a town and its ethos and its affect. You have recurring characters, but there is no central protagonist, unless you consider Tita to be the central protagonist, but he's just the most recurring of the ensemble cast of recurring characters. Yeah, and, and I think to the end, there's no protagonist, but there's also not really any plot. No, it's an episodic film. It's a film that is very much structured in a series of vignettes. One of the things that I found striking about it in particular was that the title of the film 
comes from an Italian dialect, which means I remember. And so particularly the thing of like memory in this film is interesting to me because not so much on particular vignettes, but the general narrative structure that it's maybe slightly fragmented or episodic or that it's structured in these vignettes because that is like the subjective way that memory works, isn't it? Of, of like these maybe unreliable or slightly like dreamlike vignettes. I, I thought that's interesting if you think, you know, if you think about memory as like this unreliable subjective thing. And that's probably what makes it a bit more interesting than Life is Beautiful, for example, because Life is Beautiful doesn't re- as far as I remember, does Life is Beautiful have a direct address to camera like Breaking of the Fourth Wall? It has a narrator. Has a narrator? No, well, it, but so exactly. It's, which so isn't the same at all. No, so it doesn't really have a technique which which takes you outside of the narrative, right? But but most in, in most the, characters get a direct address to camera. Yeah, there's in, one recurring character of the the lawyer. The lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of similar to like we were saying, at least with the start of um, Seven Beauties, again, that's something which kind of takes you outside. It's like a frame, a narrative framing device, where it's this sort of narration. At least in my interpretation, it's a narration from the present tense in in Seven Beauties. And so, similarly in Amicord, there is this. It's a bit more nuanced about its depiction of memory and how the past relates to the present. How do you guys feel about the presentation of fascism being fundamentally concerned with sex? Well, there's the scene where the, the one of the main characters in this film, who's called Gradiska, and she's presented as the belle of the town, the woman that everyone is horny for. And we never see her entertain, until the very, very end, we never see her entertain anyone's advances seriously. But then there's this scene where a fascist parade is going through town, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mussolini is on one of the cars. Yes, but I don't think yeah. you see him. You don't see him, but you see her chasing after the car and going like, Duce, Duce, you're so handsome. Oh, I'm so in love with you. <laughs> so, so what does her name mean in English? Gradiska means enjoy. Yeah, I think enjoy is the most proper translation and it comes from an urban legend about her who was hired i think as a sex worker as a courtesan to entertain this prince and the way she seduced him was she laid in his bed in lingerie and as he opened it's like a baldachin bed and as he opened the curtains to her she just laying down there and in a very almost i want to say concerted tone she doesn't seem to be into it at all but she just goes enjoy or like take your share like she gives her so it's like it's like gratify yeah yeah. Well, in the English dub, uh, she's called Play. <laughs> That's a very good translation. It's not English, but it, it No, it, yeah, but, 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 you, the... but English people know what that means. Yeah, it, it really conveys that, yeah. <laughs> but the fact that everyone is concerned with very much their base desires in this film, while this sort of grand narrative of history is going on around them, you know, the rise of Mussolini, obviously he's already risen at the time of the film, but the film is set at a very distinct period that could be addressed and has been addressed with a lot more historical importance than I think the film is doing. I think the film is saying, no, these guys are all idiots. They're all children. Like, even down to the fact that, look, the interrogation scene where they feed him castor oil is a very tame version of interrogations by fascists and Nazis mm-hmm. that you might see in other films. And I think that's such a deliberate choice, either because it's saying that, no, fascism was just an aesthetic that a lot of people put on and there were good people and bad people in every work of life. But in this period of time, the police wore fascist uniforms. I don't think that's what the film is saying as much as they're all idiots. I think what the film is doing there is it's almost showing the banality of living under 
fascist occupation in that Italian period, where it was almost normalized and expected that you could be brought in for interrogation at any point, and the officers themselves treated as almost an object of mundane work, whereas they're torturing a man. And what is crucial about that scene is that the reason why he's brought in and tortured is that he's been ratted out by a family member for saying, and I quote, if Mussolini goes on like that, I don't know. And that is the extent of his radical, communistic, anti-fascistic it, it, speech. It's, it's kind of like, it's like playground gossip. Yeah. The way that they treat it. And I think that the fact that every character is infantilized, it highlights that. And I think that in a way it is more sanitized than life is beautiful in a, in a weird way, because even though it's not dealing with the same sort of historical events that the characters in that film go through, the, the fact that the fascists by and large in this film are sort of lovable idiots. To go back to a point about, I can't remember which one of you asked, like an open-ended question about, again, this recurring theme of, of the connections between um, sex and fascism. And it, I've just it's just been particularly striking, right, that it, it, this podcast, you know, I hadn't thought of it in such a integrated way, but this podcast has made me consider there are all these Italian films from around about the same period which have this sadomasochistic or sexualized dynamic to, to fascism, right? Like, so like, yeah, Salo, also the She-Wolf of the SS and the two films we're discussing. And I get what my, my one sort of thought on that in, in relation to Amacord specifically is that if you read the film in some sense as a reasonably subjective sort of, it's almost like the memories of a teenage boy, right? It, you know, what do teenage boys do a lot of? <laughs> in that sense, you know, it, that doesn't account for all of it, but that, you know, that makes sense to put that in a film about a teenage boy's memory, you know, growing up, right? Are you, are you, are you accusing Italians of being horny? How dare you say things that are entirely true? I suppose my next question was, what do you think the film achieves by not including Nazis, German soldiers specifically? Do you think that that is to the film's benefit? Or do you think, even if it's not set during that period, a film that deals with fascism that isn't dealing with German Nazism is being somewhat disingenuous? Um, no, not necessarily, because I, I don't think it's it's really the, the remit of the film, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, in, in my understanding, it, it's sort of a poetic, almost like carnivalesque and subjective memory of what Italy was like in, I think, it's set the 30s and the 40s, right? Pre-war, I think. Yeah, I'm not 30s. Sure yeah. During the war. yeah, 30s, yeah. Well, yeah when so when does Mussolini not... come to power? 25. So 25 th there's a long yeah. period before well, Hitler's in power yeah. that yeah. Italy is the main fascist mm -hmm. country. Actually, I think 22 is when he first comes into power, but 25 is when he takes uh, totalitarian power. So yeah. yeah. But yeah, in terms of the film's representation of fascism or Nazism, or specifically Italian fascism, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily the remit of the film. And I, and I think there is plenty in there. It, to me, it, it seems more or less the sort of classic way of making comedy about fascism where, where it's, you know, you, you sort of mock the grandiose uh, nature of it. You know, like the, when it depicts some of the parades and things like that, you know, that was... That was what it was about to me, uh, mocking the sort of pompous nature of sort of military style fascism in the, in the sense of not including really any German Nazism specifically. I, I don't think it's a fair criticism of the film as such because it's just, it's about Italian fascism specifically, I guess. Yeah, and you also have to talk about historicity, like the real life town that uh, the town in Amarcord is based on. Maybe at the time when Fellini was living there, he never saw any German soldiers or never interacted with them. 
Yeah. The one thing that I thought about it was there is a potential criticism of the film that it that it almost depicts fascist era Italy as like idyllic in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the tone of the film is quite sort of carnivalesque and and like you know there's so many scenes of people out in the streets, you know, like chatting and you know all the crowd scenes in this film are amazing and like so rich like visually and so much like complex mise en scène. And and it depicts it in quite this like kind of a less exciting, fun way, and and that's a, that's an open ended question. I think like does it? I'm not saying it idealizes fascism, but it it makes it look like fun and to to be in that era. I read that as it being this is the high of fascism. This is it before the fall. This is when everyone's sort of high on their own supply and is able to still believe the propaganda to some extent. And what I think the film is then missing is an acknowledgement explicitly that, yeah, that's all going to change. World War II is going to happen, Germans are going to invade, and this is a short period of joy for these Italians specifically. Yeah, that's these Italians is exactly what was going to bring up. But because it's not dealing with the people who are actually suffering Mm -hmm. under particularly fascist um, criminal policy, Mm -hmm. you don't see the outside. And I understand that that's because it's from a child's perspective. But I think that since the film isn't specifically from one person's perspective, and the worst you ever see the fascists are, you know, force feeding someone castor oil and shooting a record player. Maybe that's what I meant when I said disingenuous, that even the high was a closed loop and because we never see outside the bubble it doesn't allow us that catharsis but maybe when the film was made and being made in Italy you don't need to make that explicit but I wonder if watching that in 2022 in the UK our experience and our inferences from the film are different. Um, One of the most striking images in the film I think is after the beginning scenes which don't really address the fascist presence at all it opens up with a town fair and then there's a string of scenes set in Tita's school where you see all the students playing pranks on each other and it's this very whimsical sequence where you also see all of their teachers one after another presented as being this very like colorful array of almost cartoony characters. Then later, when you get the scene we talked about earlier of the fascist parade, all of the teachers are shown wearing fascist uniforms and waving fascist flags. So it's almost like you're inserted into this mundane day-to-day life of this town. And then it turns out, oh, wow, the reason why they're enjoying this mundanity, the reason why they're enjoying this as you said, Archie, idyllic uh, day-to-day life is because they are at best quiet witnesses of fascism and at worst active collaborators of fascism. In that sense, it's a bit like Cabaret. Yeah. In that you have these eccentric, colourful characters that you then zoom out and reevaluate in the context and the audience and the protagonists understand it a bit better that these yeah. are... So that's sort of my my view on it. The other thing that I think is interesting, just as a point of comparison to Life is Beautiful, there is a schoolroom scene in Life is Beautiful. Mm-hmm. When rewatching Amakord, knowing that the teachers are fascist and this is a fascist curriculum, you see the signs of that in the classroom scenes. And I think maybe that's more obvious from the beginning if you are Italian or if you have that, as I said, cultural shorthand. But I wonder, is there something to be said for the fact that Life's Beautiful, which is, I think, even the earliest part is set later than Amakord, mm-hmm. that it is much more explicitly about fascist racial policy. Whereas at this stage in Italian history, the fascist curriculum It's about bigging up the talking points of Mussolini, the God, the Roman Empire. Yeah, conflating Mussolini with Jesus. 
it's all very tied to the politics of fascism, but doesn't take that step into something that is totally mm -hmm. unrecognizable as anything else other than, you know, just fascist doctrine. Uh, yeah. So for a bit of a specification, the racial laws in Italy, which were the legalization of active persecution based on race, were enacted in 1938. Obviously, before that, it's not like the climate was perfectly safe for Jewish people or uh, people of color, but it, it became written in the text of law in 1938. And the beginning of life is beautifully said in 1939. So after that, whereas Amarcord is said before that. Towards the beginning of the film, I was thinking, like, where where is the representation of fascism? And the thing that struck me is actually, if you think about it, there are a lot of the scenes, these all these vignettes, they're all about authority figures and they're mm -hmm. all about actually mocking authority figures. So it's, while it's not explicitly about fascism, where it, it, not every scene depicts people in fascist uniforms, but there is so much in the film where it's about like laughing at authority figures behind their back. Like the whole, the whole when they're in the school mm -hmm. um, and then when, when they're talking to the priest or some religious yeah. figure, when, when they're confessing to the priest, that's all yeah. about, uh, it's all about telling the a priest. A Catholic priest during a period in which the Catholic Church was uh, an ally of the fascist regime yeah so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah so to, to me in that sense it's it's about a social hierarchy and about and about power and about mocking people in position of power and, and in that sense it is about, about a fascist mentality maybe it's trying to mock a fascist mentality. and an interesting like view on on resistance which is probably close to to life is beautiful in a weird way in that it's you can't really describe benigni's character as a resistance fighter but even in the first half of the film, before he goes into the concentration camp, he is mocking and belittling and berating this fascist figure of the fiancé who eventually, of the woman who eventually becomes his wife. But that doesn't feel political. That feels no. more like it's because he's a wise guy and yeah. makes fun of everyone. And the guy just so happens to be a fascist. Like, we're not aware of it. Like, For someone like, living through a very political yeah. time, Guido is constantly pretty much apolitical. With that in mind, why don't we move on to our next pick, uh, The Interpreter. The Interpreter, or um, in Slovakian, uh, in its native language, Tomocznik, is a 2018 film directed by Martin Sulik, the Czech-Slovakian filmmaker. The film is a Czech-Slovakian-Austrian co-production, and this sort of transnational dynamic is reflected in the narrative of the film. In terms of its genre, it could be described as a road movie. It's a film set in the present, so released in 2018 and set contemporarily. The narrative involves, um, on the one hand, the second generation descendant of Nazi SS officer, uh, a man called Georg. And Georg lives quite a, um, a hedonistic life. He enjoys prostitutes. He has a history of alcoholism. And generally the idea is that he's sort of trying to forget the past. You know what I mean? Forget the traumatic history that his family and his um, nation is involved in. 
And then he is visited by a man called Ali, who is a Jewish Holocaust survivor whose parents died in the Holocaust. Ali, the beginning of the film is where Ali visits Georg and Ali wants to shoot Georg's father, who Ali believes murdered his parents. So um, that's how the film starts. And, and eventually they, with a lot of tension and problems, they eventually form a friendship. And the, the, the majority of the film's narrative is their road trip through Austria and Slovakia, where they both in various ways sort of attempt to unearth the dark past so that's the film's narrative do you want any more on top of the synopsis no no that, 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 was, that, was, that was perfect was i've done you... a thousand presentations on this film so, <laughs> so why exactly did you choose this film as a counterpoint to life is beautiful I, well exactly perfect question so well, thank you <laughs> we're so no, no. nice <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well so i mean i mean one one just sort of practical reason i'm writing a chapter on this film for my phd and i've done lots of presentations on it recently so you know it, it's at the forefront of my mind but generally uh, my understanding of this the sort of theme of this podcast was to think about films which are to do with memory or the history of world war ii and the holocaust um, and particularly one of the controversies with Life is Beautiful is is how the tone of it is considered inappropriate for a film which is set in a concentration camp, that it's a comedy. And Tlamochnik, or the interpreter, it's not necessarily a comedy as such, but a couple of things that are interesting about it is firstly, that there, there are funny moments and it does often, like Martin Sulik, the director, he, he's known for directing sort of magic realist films and it does mm. have these sort of like strange or surreal moments in it where, where life life itself is considered strange. It's that sort of mood. And another point is that it's it's told for the form of a popular genre, the road movie. And so often, you know, when we're talking about Holocaust and its relationship in cinema, there's often this thing of sort of low and high culture, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Where, where sort of, you know, high modernism, something like, like Shoah, Claude Landsman's documentary, is considered a more somehow ethically appropriate way of depicting the Holocaust. So it's got this low genre. And then generally there, there are some funny moments, like yeah. as well as being a road movie in terms of genre, you could almost say it's like an odd couple film. Yeah, no, well, no, no, the no. best road movies are also odd couple films. Yeah, but right, exactly. Movie, yeah. So have you, have you, there's this very early like one of the original road movies was called it happened one night it's a, it's a yeah film. yes i love that film <laughs> right. uh, frank and so, and so there's there's the, the, the famous thing and it happened one night is this whole thing where they're trying to do they sleep in the same bed do they not it <laughs> happens it happens in the interpreter right like the son of a nazi ss officer and the son of a, a holocaust victim it's kind of crazy when you think about it the film there's, there's also scenario. that whole subplot in it happened one night where claude colbert's uh, father killed clark gable's parents <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. I was very charmed by this film. If if it's a particularly good find by a guest, I always like to just make sure they know that, like, thank you for bringing it to our attention. I wouldn't have found it otherwise, and it meant uh, a great deal to me watching it. And if Life is Beautiful is a fairy tale with heroes and monsters, then I think of the interpreter as more of a quest. I mean, all road movies are to an extent like a heroic quest, but there's something sort of because they're both of different generations to each other, but probably different generations to most of the characters that they encounter. Although there is a great deal of grey hair in this film, <laughs> so it is getting a bit difficult to know all the generational dynamics between everyone. <laughs> but there is the fact that it crosses generational boundaries, the fact that it crosses geographical boundaries, historical boundaries as well. Like, you know, victim-perpetrator. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of there, There's literally yeah. the conversation he has with um, Ali's daughter, where he says, with Georg I'm talking about, says, who suffers more, the victim of the murderer or the victim of the parents? 
after being called out for comparing his experiences with that of Ali. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an interesting question and, and not one that you shouldn't have any answers to, but the fact that he sees himself as a victim, despite the fact that he was on the other side of this atrocity. But this is why like this film was so interesting for someone like me to engage with, because it's very much a film that Unlike Seven Beauties and Amarcord, which both deal with fascist collaboration at the time of fascism, there is a film that interrogates the question of the crimes of the father and how, you know, we as contemporary individuals have to deal with them. And as someone from Italy, you know, it's the country that created Roberto Benigni. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that. I, I, I appreciate it. Well done. But I, I also liked that by Ali being an elderly man and Georg being a middle-aged man, and they are of different generations, even though their parents crossed paths during the war, that the spectre of an elderly Holocaust survivor hanging over this, you know, not young Austrian man, his age in itself is a reminder of not only his family's past, but his country's past. Yeah, certainly. And I think age is, is an important factor in the film, for sure, because, well, Peter Simonashek, who plays Georg, Who's, he's famous from Tony Erdman, which yeah. is like a, like a famous like German comedy recent film. And then Ali is played by Jerry Menzel, who is the famous director from the Czech New Wave, right? So it's a very it's very iconic actor and, and just figure in sort of European art cinema. But what's very interesting about the film is, is how art reflects life and life reflects art in the sense that the film depicts towards the end Jerry Menzel's character Ali becoming ill and possibly dying. The film doesn't actually show, show what happens conclusively. And actually towards the end of the interpreter being shot, Jerry Menzel himself fell ill and died, right? So he, he died just towards the end of this film. So like the film premiered, I think at the Berlin Film Festival, and, and Jerry Mendel wasn't there because he, he passed away. So it's just, yeah, it's just it's just a little bit interesting context. What is what possibly happened that he got ill and they wrote his character out of the final part of the film? That is very possible, yeah. yeah. And, and some other interesting production context about the film is that it's not directly based off of a book, but it was definitely inspired by a book. The director, Martin Sulik, was listening to the radio and what came on the radio was an excerpt from a book. I think in English it's called The Dead Man in the Bunker and it's written by a man called Martin Pollack, who, who's an Austrian man whose own father was part of the SS in and stationed in Slovakia during the war, um, called Gerhard Bast. Um, and so what's interesting about the film in terms of how it approaches Holocaust memory and how Jewish people fit into that is, is kind of like the narrative of the about Austria and about Nazis and about sort of the, the descendants of the perpetrator, about Georg. You do get a sense that's a more prominent part of the narrative, I think. In, in, in essence, that's a bit more fleshed out, right? In recommending this film to you, I'm, I'm not saying I unashamedly love every single aspect of the film. I just think it's an interest. It's certainly it's an interesting film. It's an interesting perspective, especially as we get to a point where there are tragically fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors. The <laughs> fact that it is so much dealing with the legacy of these things rather than the very cinematic experiences that these people went through. It's dealing with what happens next? What do we do as countries, as people, as a species, after we experience this atrocity and any atrocity, yeah. how do we learn from the mistakes and how do we not? And that is discussed in the film, I think, really beautifully. Ali has that wonderful monologue where he, he implies that no matter how hard he tries, people will always look at him and see a Jew. Mm. And I found that very touching. Jerry Menzel, he's not Jewish, is he? Don't think so, no. 
I couldn't find anything to imply no, that he was. He and the director isn't Jewish. No, not either. How do you feel about that, Archie? Honestly, honestly, fine. More I, generally, not just related to this. Yeah, yeah, no, honestly, fine. I think, like for example, there is at the the song at the end of the film. There, there's this sort of choir um, song at the end, and I found out that that song it's a sort of like choiral version of uh, a Yiddish folk song, right? And it's it's sung in Yiddish. And when I first heard it, I thought the song at the end of the film it's this sort of epic choir, and I thought, oh, this is just this is like a Christian song, and I thought, oh, that's actually problematic because we're dealing with you know a film about the extermination of Jewish people, right? So it's you know it's sort of an overwriting of Jewish culture but when I looked into it I think that's fascinating that it's it's almost about like intercultural dialogue that it's got well, this non-Jewish director using like this Yiddish folk song at the end of this film but also the merging of those two styles and those two cultures are present not just in the friendship between Georg and Ali but just in Ali himself because yes he's a Jew but he's a baptized Jew who made sure that his daughter got baptized. So the combination of Yiddishisms and Catholicism, that's present in him as well. Definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. And, and and at least from some details in the script, it doesn't sound like the film was made in the complete absence of Jewish people, I don't know. It, like uh, Ali's character refers to being like a cosmopolitan Jew or something like that. Yeah, yeah no, and it, it just seemed from some details in the script that there is at least some awareness of Jewish sort of culture there. They have a conversation where they talk about the community, which is a conversation, if you're Jewish, you will just hear the community sort of referred to as a homogenous blob. Yeah. When we are talking about things like historical memory and documentation, very importantly, and I would be remiss if we didn't discuss it, this film uses archive footage. There is one interview that is explicitly an archive interview. Are any of the other more fictive interviews based on real documents? Like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my understanding that any archival documents in the film referring to Georg's father are fictional recreations of archival documentation. But the witness testimonies that you see in the film are real testimonies. Yeah. Mm. And I, I've wasted hours and hours and hours trying to find more information about them. But I think I'd have to go to like some archive in Slovakia. And, like, you probably yeah. have to ask to contact the producers of the film or something. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. It had some historical. Yeah, I would have to contact yeah. them. But um, there are ethical questions there about sort of remediating these these testimonies, these sort of historical documentation without actually explicitly flagging it. Mm. Um, however, it, it, to me, that is one of the most interesting aspects of the film, because yeah, when you're talking about films like Life is Beautiful or, you know, it's always like Schindler's List and films like this, films about the Holocaust of World War II, which fictionally reconstruct the past, uh, you, you, you contrast that to the interpreter. And to me, what's so interesting about it is it's set in the present, but it nonetheless engages with, with a lot of the questions that a lot of other Holocaust films do to do with, you know, witnessing of trauma. And it sort of remediates these things, but obviously not in the way that a fiction film recreates history, but you, you see characters looking at, old photographs you see characters themselves watching the testimony and the film makes a great deal of fuss about you know it's almost like we're witnessing witnessing you get me you, you see Georg in the archive watching the testimony so and then he decides to, sh to turn it off actually as well which is another interesting theory so he refuses to engage with history yeah and, and he burns some documents as well doesn't he yeah which actually has some quite dodgy connotations yeah it? book burning and all these things i i guess that's his character is trying to reject the past and move on that's what well it's also he's holding on to from what i understand they're copies of archives or are they the personals that he brought with to slovakia 
they are they are the fictionally reconstructed archival documents of Georg's SS father. They're, they're images of Georg. So SS that's father. what he got from the trip to the archives. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so those are copies. It's not like he's demolishing history. Yeah. Because I was worried about that. And he's not actually, he's not burning real. I mean, there are still ethical questions to be asked there, but he's not burning like real historical documents. Oh, did he yeah. burn real documents for the making of this film? <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, I, did, I didn't think the, <laughs> film, the film would make a point of doing that. But I mean, even yeah. for his character and what it says about his character in doing that, I feel more relaxed knowing that we think that he's burning copies of things there are records. It's more, of. Like, it's more like he's detaching himself from the documents rather yeah. than you know erasing them from existence. He, he's not engaging in historical revisionism. Yeah. That's yeah. put my mind at ease. Yeah. When we're talking about this relationship between past and present, it's very interesting that multiple, multiple times in the film there are references to the Ukrainian-Russian war. Oh yeah, and yeah. I to found me, that it's, fascinating. Just, it's just fascinating that that occurs in the context of a film which is also about Holocaust memory. Um, so obviously, at the time of the film's release, two thousand eighteen, this was just the this was the Russian occupation of Donbass. But you know, now because of what's happened this year, it's all the more relevant. Um, I mean, it's a stark reminder that what happened this year didn't come out of nowhere, and it's actually been in motion for several years already. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and generally, it's you know, it's like. Well, what, you know, what, what is that saying about how people view Holocaust memory today, that it enters into dialogue in some way with yeah. contemporary conflicts, right? Yeah. Uh, the last question we'd like to ask is which of the alternate picks works best as a double bill for the main pick, in this case, Life is Beautiful? And obviously it's a difficult question to ask with Holocaust films, but I think the question still stands, even if it has a slightly different uh, subtext. Well, I guess with the logic that they are good contrasts to one another, I would pick Life is Beautiful and The Interpreter. Mm -hmm. Well, for example, I, I was giving a presentation earlier in the week about my PhD research, which is about yeah Holocaust memory in cinema. And I was just listing films that I assume people will have heard of, which are well known as being, you know, Holocaust films and particularly controversial Holocaust mm -hmm. films and I named Life is Beautiful as one of them you know like it's got you know the recognizable iconography it's got the debates about you know is it right to make a comedy set in a concentration camp and then yeah I would pick the interpreter as a contrast because it's about the Holocaust but set set contemporarily set as a contrast on a sort of historical temporal level so yeah so that's, that's that's the sort of gist of my using the same logic but different reasons i'd say my ideal is um seven beauties because it's a thematic rather than historical contrast that i think that anyone who watches life is beautiful needs to also be confronted with the sort of eviscerating tone of seven beauties mm -hmm. almost like a splash of cold water so there was uh we were talking off mic about it but we were sort of asking ourselves the question is any film about this subject, like by nature, no matter how you make it, going to be controversial or problematic, or problematic. In some way. And I think the answer is yes, just because it's such a sensitive subject that is prone to elicit such strong emotional reactions that whatever film you make about it, it is going to trigger a strong reaction out of someone, at least in the audience. And it's almost like the way I feel about Life is Beautiful is that it's trying almost too hard to be unproblematic and that makes it problematic in a way and that's why to me seven beauties is such an interesting comparison to it because seven beauties is almost trying to be as problematic as it can at points and you could argue that it goes over the line but also to me there is an element of maybe a film about this topic should make you uncomfortable it should make you feel dirty and it should make you feel frustrated Amarcord 
for a very different reason. It's almost like of the, our three alternate picks, it's probably the easier watch, even including the interpreter, just because the interpreter has that sequence of interviews that are quite harrowing. I do think that Amarcord is probably the easier, lighter film of the three. Not that it's a superficial film by any means. It does that in a way that feels more responsible and feels more organic and feels less pandering that life is beautiful to me. So that will make it a great double bill. Yeah, I mean, that would be specifically to watch it, to watch something that would make you reevaluate Life is Beautiful mm-hmm. rather than for its own sake. And I think the film very much stands on its own. Mm-hmm. I suppose the other thing to clarify just for listeners is that obviously the Holocaust wasn't made to be adapted into movies. And so everyone's reaction to these films is deeply personal, deeply specific. And at the end of the day, something enables you to process any of it. That's an extremely valid Mm -hmm. reaction just because we feel a certain way on this part. And we don't all feel the same way, but there is no right way to feel about these events. And I Mm -hmm. I really don't want us to, just because Francesco and I don't like Life is Beautiful, the people who get something out of it and it in the best cases can heal in some way because of it that's extremely valid and that's extremely useful and we wouldn't want to diminish yeah. that in any way uh thank you very much archie for coming on and sharing your expertise we really appreciate it um you gave us a perspective that was less superficial than our understanding just through the films you've studied it more deeply so this, thank you for, so much for coming on where can people follow you on social media um, I don't. I don't really have social media, actually. I, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't use. I, I find Twitter annoying. <laughs> yeah, I do have a blog. I do have a blog. It's it's just a sort of personal. Well, it's a personal blog which is related to my PhD research, where I just post things that come into my head. It's showacinemamemoryethics.wordpress.com. Oh wow, what a name! <laughs> no, not catchy. Well, those are those are the four things that it's about. Wordpress. That's what. Ethics <laughs> together. <laughs> .wordpress, yeah, .com. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, well, thank you again, Archie. If you want to follow us on social media, our Twitter is at BCUWatchPod. Our Instagram is at BCUWatchPodcast. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jade. And thank you for listening. And buonanotte, principesse. Oh. <laughs> Why did you have to... Okay. You're doing so <laughs> Thanks well. so much, both. You appreciate it. It was, it was <laughs> thank fun you. to talk to you. Cheers.